WATD presents John Paul, the car doctor. All things automotive. Have questions? Call 781-837-4900. Now, here's John Paul, the car doctor. And welcome to the car doctor program on this Sunday morning. Um, Jesse took last Sunday off and apparently needs to be retrained. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I just, you know, uh, we work in efficiency here, and I figure what, but what, what's more efficient than just ending the show immediately? Well, that just, you know, other than, well, it would give me an extra hour of my day, I suppose. So. See, I'm just looking out but, for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, this, this, this is uh, the Car Doctor program. You'll see on 95.9 WATD, and this is the place where we try to provide you with some advice about getting your car repaired, talking about what's new in the industry, and I don't think... You know, electric cars have been around for a long time. They've been around since the turn of the last century. And they're really starting to get popular. And they also can be sort of confusing for people. And with us is on the phone is Anna Vandespeck. She is the Electric Vehicle Program Director at the Green Energy Consumer Alliance. Anna, welcome back to the Car Doctor Program. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. And uh, first off, tell us a little bit about what the Green Energy Consumer Alliance is and what it means to people who live in Massachusetts. Sure. Uh, so Green Energy Consumers Alliance is a nonprofit organization. Our mission is all about empowering consumers and communities to speed a just transition to a zero-carbon world. That's a lot of words. Uh, what that means is we run uh, programs and services that help people uh, learn what they need to learn to make the switch to various clean energy technologies, whether that's uh, heat pumps or solar or wind uh, or energy efficiency or electric vehicles. Um, and we are sort of there as a trusted third party to help them make that switch. And we also do policy advocacy work at the state level. Again, a lot of words. And, uh, you know, what are, <laughs> that's, all, that's all I got, words. Yeah. And uh, as do I. Um, and one of the things we always talk about is you know electric vehicles you know are they you know do they work do they work the way they should be and we hear an awful lot of negative press about electric vehicles what's going to happen you know if you have an electric car and you're stuck in you know frigid weather and you're stuck out on the mass turnpike for hours and hours and hours reality is you're better off being in an electric car stuck out on the highway than because chances are you left the house in the morning with a full tank of electrons versus uh, what most people drive around with a quarter of a tank of gasoline. They're probably going to run out of gas. And with an electric car, you, you're going to sit there and the car's going to keep you warm. Um, right now, though, tell us about some of the kind of incentives for people who live in Massachusetts and maybe outside of Massachusetts that can help make electric cars more more affordable? Because that's one of the issues still is electric cars are still expensive. For sure. That, that price premium is definitely closing over time, um, which is exciting. And that has a lot to do with the battery chemistries getting better and the automakers and battery manufacturers reaching more economies of scale. But one of the biggest sets of questions we get is how do all these incentives work? So I'm more than happy to walk through that. So I will start at the federal level and then come down to the state level. So uh, listeners might be aware that there's been a federal tax credit for the purchase of electric vehicles uh, since the Obama years. But what's new is that the, the rules and the eligibility requirements have changed uh, in 2022. And now there's some new rules in 2024 that we should all be aware of. So 
The first thing is that there are sort of three uh, requirements around you, the, the buyer and the vehicle. So the first thing is that there is now an income requirement. You have to be below a certain income to qualify for the federal tax credit. For joint filers, that's $300,000. For heads of household, that's $225,000. And for individual filers, that's $150,000. Then there's requirements on the vehicle itself. Um, the final assembly location has to be in North America. The manufacturer's suggested retail price has to be under $80,000 if it's an SUV or a pickup truck and under $55,000 if it's a sedan or hatchback. And then there's really complicated battery and mineral requirements that I don't need to go into because they're complicated. Long story short, what this means... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was I was just uh, I was just uh, took a breath. I think so. Oh, okay. Long story short, um, if you want to get the federal tax credit for a new vehicle or a used vehicle, because there's a counterpart now for used vehicles that's up to four thousand dollars, you have to find a dealership that is registered with the IRS's Clean Energy Portal. And what that means is, when you go to the dealership, you say, "Are you registered with IRS?" They say yes. Then, when you buy the vehicle you get a time of sale report, uh, which basically says exactly what vehicle you're buying, exactly what level of federal tax credit it qualifies for. And you can decide whether to receive that incentive at the point of sale, uh, basically as cash on the hood, or whether you want to claim it when you file your taxes at the end of the year. So that is a complication now that you need to make sure that the dealership is registered but it's really, really good news because it means that you no longer have to shell out that money and then wait until tax time to get reimbursed. You can just get it immediately right off right off the top when you're buying the vehicle. So that is the, the good news on the federal tax credit. Again, for new cars, it's up to $7,500, and for used vehicles, it's up to $4,000 or 30% of the price. And one of the things that uh, – this all sounds complicated, but it really uh, – at the end of the day, it's really not that complicated. It's pretty straightforward when providing you sort of work within the guidelines, right? Yes. If there's one takeaway, if you're looking for a new or used electric vehicle, ask the dealership if they're registered with the IRS and only proceed if they say yes. And then they can make sure you know all the details and get the paperwork that you need. Are there any incentives to help people that buy a car from a private party that's an EV? No. The federal tax credit um, requires that you go through a registered dealership. Um, there is a, a website out there that we're still investigating, so this is not, not an endorsement, but just a heads up. The, the website Key Savvy um, allows you to basically sell a vehicle to an individual through Key Savvy, which is registered as a dealership, and they have just um, sort of unveiled a new tool that allows you to take advantage of the federal tax credit for a used electric vehicle if it applies through that tool. But everything really requires that you go through a dealership. Yeah, that, that actually really does make sense. And and the, the website you mentioned, it sounds like, like almost some consumers' uh, products, it sounds like they're going to take ownership of it for a split second in time so they can apply and do all the do all the paperwork behind the scenes. So, yeah, I, I think I really like the idea of going through a dealership. And uh, leasing is also, you know, people think about leasing, but in some cases the incentives can come off of the lease payments as well, right? Yes. When you, when you lease an electric vehicle, the dealership or the leasing agent 
can basically apply for the commercial electric vehicle tax credit, which is just a commercial parallel for the personal one. Um, and many manufacturers or, or basically their banks have decided to pass the value of that on to the consumer. So you're seeing a lot of electric vehicles advertised with a $7,500 um, like bonus or something on the lease. That's often the federal tax credit being passed through. Um, but leasing is a good thing to keep in mind if you have your eye on an electric vehicle that doesn't qualify for the, the personal electric vehicle federal tax credit um, because the commercial version doesn't have all the same requirements. So a, a very simple example is that um, the Kia and Hyundai vehicles, which are excellent vehicles, um, don't qualify for the federal tax credit if you're purchasing um, because they're not assembled in North America. But that requirement doesn't exist for um, the commercial vehicle tax credit. So if you lease, uh, you can maybe capture that value, even if the vehicle doesn't qualify for the individual tax credit. And you're right. They are both excellent vehicles. In fact, we have two of them that we use for our driving school, the AAA driving school. Um, and we wanted to see how they would, part of it is a learning experience for us. We wanted to see how these vehicles were going to perform uh, in kind of a weird situation, you know, teaching kids how to drive. And also we have, um, and I don't know how many are on the road, but we have a whole parking lot full of Ford Lightnings right now. I think we have 35 Ford Lightnings that we're using for road service uh, to be able to provide uh, road service to our members. And we set up high-speed charging wherever we could. And uh, so far, those are working out Those are working out pretty well. And we're delivering the same type of road service. We're delivering batteries and flat tire repair and things like that. And we're also, I think now, I think we have 12... Uh, level two portable charging units that we're able to provide um, electric vehicle recharge. It's not the quickest, most efficient, and because of the weight of the charging system, we have to put it on a pretty good-sized gasoline truck. So we're delivering a, an electric charge with the gasoline-powered vehicle with a gasoline-powered generator, so it sounds a little weird. But on the other hand, if you're out of electricity and you're stuck somewhere, you're probably pretty happy to see us show up. So, This is where I'm contractually obligated to mention that it's very, very rare to run out of electricity um, because the, the vehicles are designed to really maximize the use of the battery and give you plenty of warning before you're close to running out. Um, so if, if you've never driven an electric car on the dashboard, basically it will tell you how many miles you have left, and the vehicle is smart enough to adjust that estimate based on the type of driving you're doing and what other um, features you're running in the vehicle. So if you're driving on the highway, it's going to go, okay, we're driving on the highway. Battery will deplete a little faster than if we were on uh, city streets, and it'll adjust that estimate down. If you turn on the air conditioning or the heating or turn off the air conditioning or the heating, it takes all of that into account. So you always have in front of you an estimate of how many miles you can go before you really, really need to charge. So it's, it's very rare that people run out completely. You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, most of our, I would say, and I'm making up a number, 99.5% maybe, um, of our electric vehicle services because of flat tires. Uh, not because <laughs> yeah. not not because people have run out of electricity, and I don't believe, at least in last check, there was an electric vehicle that actually had a spare. So uh, you know, it turns you know. So we're coming out and rescuing people with a flat tire. Uh, and again, you're right; people don't run out of electricity, even. 
um, you know, the rental agencies, Hertz and Avis and all those that had electric vehicles, very few of them, I, I've heard reports that ran out of electricity. They just, uh, um, you know, it was one of those things. In fact, we just bought a, uh, uh, we, AAA, just bought a Tesla Model 3 that came out of the Hertz fleet. It had about 90,000 miles on it. It still had a 210-mile battery range, so the battery really didn't degrade at all. And I think mm-hmm. we paid, I think we paid seventeen or eighteen thousand dollars for it. And it's a, it's nice. a, it's a really nice vehicle. That's a good segue for me to mention that there are also state rebates available in Massachusetts that you can basically stack on top of the federal tax credit, and those are also available for used vehicles for the first time. So. The state of Massachusetts has a rebate program called More EV um, that has a couple of different sub-programs, but the standard is that if you purchase or lease a new electric vehicle um, in Massachusetts, then you qualify for a $3,500 state rebate, which you can receive either at the point of sale at a participating dealership or by filling out an application after the fact and then getting a check basically sent in the mail. There's also now programs for used electric vehicles. If you meet some eligibility requirements in terms of income, you can qualify for a $3,500 rebate towards a used electric car. Um, If you're a low-income driver, you qualify for an additional $1,000. And if you, sorry, $1,500. And if you trade in a really old, like more than 12-year-old gas car, Um, for your electric vehicle, then there's an additional $1,000 on top of that. So if you Google more EV, you can see all of these different sub-programs, but you can stack those on top of the federal tax credit. So in the case of that Tesla Model 3 that you just mentioned, if you were an individual buying that and it started at $17,000, you said, um, you might qualify for up to 30% of that off with the federal tax credit and then up to $3,500 with the state rebate. So you can really bring that cost down substantially if you meet all the eligibility requirements. Yeah, it really sounds it. And, and a couple of years ago, there was some really amazing electric vehicle prices. I think I remember the Chevrolet Bolt. By the time you stacked everything on top of each other, included Massachusetts and federal stuff, it, it was a $40,000 car that you could buy for like $20,000. Are there any really good deals out right now like that? Those were the good old days. Then the uh-huh. pandemic happened and, and things really changed. So um, this is a really fast changing space. The the fact that the federal tax credit has a price limit that vehicles have to be under sort of kicked off a little bit of a, a price war, which is why you've seen um, prices for the Ford Mustang Mach-E and the Tesla Model Y over the past couple of years come down a lot. Um, and vehicles sort of in that class um, have come down a lot. We watch this a lot, and I would say if you go to our website, we've got a website at greenenergyconsumers.org. We have a shopping tool where we show you what is the current MSRP of a vehicle, what federal tax credit does it qualify for, what state rebate does it qualify for, and so what is the lowest possible price. And so you can sort and filter by different characteristics and and kind of poke around. Um, The caveat is that Depending on the vehicle model, the dealers are marking it up over MSRP, but it's a good starting point um, to see. Right now, the Chevy Bolt, if you can find one, uh, the base MSRP is around 26000 Then you've got a federal tax credit of 7500 state rebate of 3500 
So the lowest possible price, if you can find that base model, um, is around $15,000. And so uh, the Chevy Bolt EUV is just a little bit above that. Um, and then you get into some of the, the Teslas, like the Model 3 that you mentioned, the VW ID4. All of those are available at prices that are much more reasonable than they were just a, a couple of years ago. But that that high level of discounting that we saw a couple of years ago is, is not so much happening right now. Are there any plug-in hybrid electric vehicles eligible for incentives? Yes. Um, so the federal tax credit um, is available for plug-in hybrids um, in general. Like there's no prohibition against it. It depends on what plug-in hybrids meet all of the other characteristics. So I'm just going to review my list real quick. The Ford Escape plug-in hybrid um, currently qualifies for a federal tax credit of $3,750. Um, and that might be the only one. Let me double check that. But the the state rebate in Massachusetts is only for battery electric vehicles. Um, the Chrysler Pacifica plug-in hybrid van um, does qualify for the federal tax credit as well, as well as the Jeep Wrangler um, 4xe and the Lincoln Corsair, which is <laughs> a little bit more pricey than uh, uh, some of the other vehicles that we've been talking about. But long story short, uh, if the vehicle meets all the eligibility requirements of the federal tax credit, then yes. For the state rebate, no. And it's not even just cars. In Rhode Island, I think electric bikes have a rebate program, don't they? They do. They do. Um, in Massachusetts, there's no rebate program uh, like that, unfortunately. But in Rhode Island, there's the Erica Nadowski um, e-bike program um, because e-bikes are uh, a great replacement for some vehicle trips um, because they can help you carry heavier loads or help you go over steeper hills uh, without breaking as much of a sweat. Uh, so in Rhode Island, there is a, a, a sort of sub-program of the electric car program um, where you can qualify for a certain amount off an electric bike if you buy it from a brick-and-mortar store in Rhode Island, and there's a higher level for income-qualified um, folks. So it's, it certainly sounds like there is a lot of information, and it's and for people who want to find out this information, the the website's pretty easy. It's um, greenenergyconsumer.org, right? That's it. Lots of lots of letters, but easy to remember. And also for people who want to find out about energy savings, everything from uh, heating oil to saving energy to you know heat pumps, and now we're seeing heat pump. Uh, water heaters, we're seeing heat pump dryers. Um, there's all kinds of information people can learn a little more about uh, some of the new technology that's it's here or it's on its way here, right? Absolutely. And that's all at greenenergyconsumers.org. One thing I'll jump in real quick to mention is that a lot of people also have questions about charging and how to install charging at home. Uh, we've got some guides to help you walk through that, but the sort of punchline I want to make sure people know is that uh, the electric utilities in Massachusetts have programs to help cover some or all of the costs of installing charging at home. It depends on what utility you have and where you live and in what kind of building. Um, but there are there are incentives there to help bring those costs down too, and all that information is on our website as well. And I believe there was was there legislation filed in Massachusetts to not limit charging at like condominiums and apartments and stuff like that. Uh, something that sort of kept 
the condominium from getting in the way of providing electric charging to the residents? Yes, that is called a right to charge rule. And basically what it does is it prohibits condominiums from uh, not allowing uh, folks to install charging at their own cost um, if they don't have a, a good sort of reasonable reason to forbid that. Um, the city of Boston has that rule in place as well. Uh, sorry, in place currently as well as Cambridge. But um, there is pending legislation that is um, before the state house right now that would extend that rule statewide. Um, and recently, the House Energy Committee released a couple of um, what we're calling minibus bills, where they basically combined lots of pieces from different bills into sort of larger. Um, pieces of legislation, and that right to charge is one of the things that made it into one of those um, minibuses. So it seems like an idea that um, might move forward this session. Well, I, there's an awful lot of information here. There's a lot to learn, but I know there's a lot of curiosity. I probably get emails every day from people interested in electric vehicles and what's my opinion and what have I driven and what haven't I driven and, you know, and to be able to go to sort of one-stop shopping to look and see, you know, even to the point of as you're shopping for electric vehicles, you can kind of read you know, uh, read these little synopsis about, you know, what kind of plug are they using? What kind of battery are they using? What's the range? As well as all the incentives and other information that's there. Uh, and your shopping tool makes it pretty easy. And I want to, you know, thank you for joining us on the Car Doctor program this morning and help enlighten our listeners about uh, what's coming what's coming down the road with electric vehicles and how easy it is to go shopping for them. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope one day the incentives will be simpler to explain and understand, and then it won't take half an hour just to go through federal and state incentives, but there are good ones out there. Well, you know, someday someday we we might not have to be chemists to figure out what, what goes into the battery to make to make the incentives work. So you're right. It's one day it'll be just nice and easy, and it'll, and it'll just be able to all work. But right now it seems to work pretty well, and your tool makes it that much easier. So thank you for that, and thank you again for taking some time out of your Sunday morning. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Anna. Bye-bye, and have a great rest of the weekend. We need to take a break and pay some bills. My name's John Paul. This is the Car Doctor Program. If you would like to join us, 781-837-4900 is the phone number. We'll be right back. AAA is with you at every moment in your life. They have 24-hour, 7 roadside assistance, which covers you in any car you're driving or riding in, even a rental or your friend's wheels. They have great member rates on home and auto insurance, savings on travel, hotels and rental cars, and discounts on hundreds of your favorite brands. You're covered on and off the road. Learn more at aaa.com join. It happens all over Massachusetts. Can you tie my shoes? In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Hey, this is Kylie Evans. Tune into Twilight Showcase Radio, hosted by Sandy Stride and Keith James on 95.9 WATD and also at 95.9WATD.com. Search for Twilight Showcase on Facebook and visit twilightshowcase.org. Twilight Showcase, tonight from 8 to 10. 
on 95.9 WATD. Make an appointment Sunday morning at 11 for John Paul, the car doctor, on 95.9 WATD. Now, back to the car doctor. And welcome back to the Car Doctor Program. I want to thank Andrew Van Speck for joining us from the Green Energy Consumer Group. Uh, there is a lot of information out there about electric vehicles and some of the things that you can learn about them. Uh, go check out the website. There's a lot of, like I said, a lot of good information out there. If you're thinking electric, and maybe you're maybe you're not quite there yet. Maybe you're thinking plug-in. Uh, there's a lot of explanation about what all the different things are and I know uh, one of the um, outlets I write for, uh, that was one of the questions that came up. They they kind of wanted to go through the alphabet soup of, you know, what's a battery electric vehicle? What's a plug-in electric vehicle? What's a hybrid electric vehicle? Um, you know, people kind of throw out the term ICE all the time. What's what's that? Well, it's an internal combustion engine is what that is. Um, so what's, you know, what, what do all the letters mean? What do they do? And, you know, Going to their website is a good way to do that. Also, AAA has a electric vehicle website too, and you can, if you go to AAA.com, you can check out the electric vehicle page. There's a ton of information there as well, and you can look at that, and that gets updated periodically too. So you can look at look at a variety of different things. Some of the interesting questions that came in this week, we'll get to those in a minute, um, but also uh, I've been talking about this a little bit over the past two weeks this little battery tester tool i bought from frankly a company i hadn't heard of before called top don and i noticed last week they had some remanufactured tools and which actually brought brought the price down even more i think it was under 30 dollars for a refurbished battery tester but this week i played around with it a little bit more and i still haven't had the ability to compare it to another tool and that's one of the things I really want to do I want to be able to compare it to for instance a AAA tool that we use called the B2Q tool uh, which I have utmost faith in how well it works Um, this one works well but this time I actually connected up to their app and their app does a few things. Besides, it stores things. It also allows you to look up different types of batteries. So if you want to look up a you know, particular car, say you had a, uh, uh, a car you wanted to see about putting a battery in, and we'll use one of my cars as an example. And it comes, and I'm pretty sure you can download this app without having the tool. But it is kind of nice because the tool does... Um, connect to the app which makes it kind of nice too so uh, you can actually store all kinds of information in there and you can also look up a battery so you can query the battery for that particular car so for instance in my car uh, depending on the engine size so my car has a 2.4 liter engine it's a um, it it requires a group 94R battery. It's uh, 800 cca, so it tells you the battery. And and one of the things about it is, which is kind of interesting, it actually gives you the physical dimensions of the size of the battery. So if you 
have more than one choice of battery, for instance, and you're wondering, you know, will this battery fit in? Well, the battery in my car is 12.4 inches long and 6.89 inches wide and 7.48 inches high. And uh, it just, it, it allows you to look up this sort of stuff. So there's a fair, you know, a fair amount of stuff on here. And also it has some things like, um, depending on where the car's from, because this is a worldwide tool. It has, you know, is it a, is it a car that was sold in Mexico? Is it a car with a two liter turbocharged engine? Is it a car that's sold in Canada? Does that make a difference? And it doesn't. Uh, the, the Canadian car uses the same battery as the car that's sold here. Although the um, battery that's sold in Mexico looks a little bit different, it uses looks like it uses a slightly different battery design. So uh, it is kind of it is it is interesting to see the app and the app. I did have a little trouble downloading the app because I went to download the app based on the the number of what this tool is called. It's called a BT one hundred W. And I didn't find that exact app, and I ended up downloading something called Battery Lab, which seems to be everything there. And what happens is when you connect the tool up to, in this case, my phone, all the tool functions, the buttons on the tool, which are, there's only five, I think, um, are all controlled by your phone afterwards. So it just switches over the control to your phone so you can essentially sit in the car, uh, run the charging test, run the starting test right from inside the car with your phone, and then it allows you to save the results and you can sort of save it and put it somewhere and, you know, maybe in six months or a year you compare it again and see how it's doing. So pretty pretty interesting tool for not a lot of money. Um, even even the uh, not refurbished one, I think, was sixty or seventy dollars. Uh, pretty reasonable tool. So just thought I'd, thought I'd mention as some more as I'm kind of playing with it and learning about it and seeing how it works. So someone wrote to me and said, "I have taken my car into several mechanics over the past several months. My car now, upon acceleration, makes a grinding noise between 35 and 40 miles an hour. It goes away when I take my foot off the gas, and then after 40, there's no other issues. I've had the oil changed every three or four months, new transmission fluid changed, new brakes and pads, new tires, new hoses for the coolant uh, replaced, and the oxygen sensors. The car does have 175,000 miles on it. It's a 2012 RAV4. I bought this car back in 2015 with 18,000 miles on it to begin my ownership. They can't figure out the noise, and now the check engine light, four-wheel drive, and track lights come on even after they say they fix it. It's very frustrating with no solution and what else do they say? All of these lights came on after I had a jump start with a dead battery. Any thoughts on this? Well, the uh, check engine light, four-wheel drive light, track lights, they usually come on most of the time due to a faulty wheel sensor. Why to come on after a jump start? Well, could be a battery issue still. Um, when the check engine light comes on, in some cases, it will disable the four-wheel drive system. Um, but at this point, I think the best thing to do would be go get the codes read. Next time the check engine light comes on, and I don't, 
I'm, I'm assuming it's not on steady. Next time it comes on, go someplace where they can quickly read the codes for you. At least then you have the codes written down. So you, when you go to the repair shop, they can, you know, they can look at it and see a little bit more of what they think is wrong. Um, as far as the noise, the grinding noise, well, there's two different things with the grinding noise. First off, it could be a rear bearing, rear um, differential bearing. If it's coming from the rear of the car, uh, there was a technical service bulletin that came out that explained this noise and the repairs necessary to take care of it but it's more of a growling than a grinding and there is a little difference in what those could be the other possibility is that the grinding noise is really a vibration and very common as cars start to age the the metal heat shields that cover the catalytic converter and other parts of the exhaust can start to rust uh, the exhaust in a lot of cases is made out of stainless steel uh, and it's very rust proof. Years ago, if you've ever had a, you know, if you've been driving around a long time, you remember average mufflers, you know, the last couple of years, two, three, you know, sometimes the replacements you were lucky to get a couple of years out of. You know, Midas muffler. People remember the old Midas muffler commercial. The old guy used to come in and get a new muffler every couple of years because it would rust away. Um, that was pretty standard. Now we see mufflers lasting literally the life of the car. But the metal shielding around it does not always last the life of the car. And at certain speeds, everything vibrates. No matter what it is, it vibrates. Uh, you know, even if you, even if you took a gyroscope, there's a vibration there it's, at certain speeds. And at a certain speed, and this could be that, 30 miles an hour, 35 miles an hour, that catalytic converter shield could be vibrating. And it will sound like a grinding noise. So it'll be very specific. It'll sound like a grinding noise. So that might be something when next time it's up on a lift to have someone pay particular attention to the shield. And if it is loose, they can try putting a big banded style clamp around it. They can look for maybe there's just a broken bracket on it. Um, I don't recommend taking them off and throwing them away uh, because the shield is there for purpose. It's there to sort of insulate the heat from the catalytic converter to the body of the car and also the heat from the catalytic converter to underneath the car so if you parked in a field of tall dried out grass and your car wasn't running well it could potentially start the grass on fire so you don't want to do that um, so I don't recommend taking the shield off uh, unless you're taking it off just to see if the noise goes away so I would look at that and I know it's frustrating and especially if you know they fix something after the, you know the check engine light came on and they said they fixed it a lot of cases though i hear people say well i took my car into the garage they looked at it and they cleared the check engine light and sent me on my way well that doesn't fix anything that just makes the light go out so you don't really know why the light went out uh they just cleared it out and said okay uh, code's gone you know we took it for a ride around the block it didn't come back on well it could take weeks for that light to come back on depending on what caused it to come on in the first place so again next time it comes on go into you know a repair shop an auto zone an o'reilly somewhere and see if they'll come out and read the code for you and some of these places now don't just come out and read the code they kind of go back into the store and they print out possibilities of things that are wrong and some of them are pretty accurate i have to admit so, so something certainly to look at
Another question comes in from somebody who owns kind of an interesting car. They own a 1962 Chevy Nova, and it had a six-cylinder engine that they changed to a 283 V8 eight-cylinder engine. They said it ran fine, but now it started to overheat. The heater core leaked, so they capped it off. Apparently, they don't care about heat in their car. And the um, hose, they say, blows off the thermostat housing. Well, that's not a good sign. They say they've never changed the radiator from a six-cylinder or an eight-cylinder. Any suggestions for the overheating? Should I first start with changing to a bigger radiator? No, I wouldn't. Because, not that it doesn't need it, because it does need a new radiator. I firmly believe it does. What I think, though, my concern is that it didn't have a problem using the old radiator, so putting a new radiator in may not fix the problem. Um, There is probably, if I had to guess, the difference between a six-cylinder and an eight-cylinder radiator is probably... 24 square inches of cooling space, which is pretty significant. That's a, you know, the eight-cylinder radiator is probably six inches wider, so it has six inches more cooling fins in it, which will help the engine run cooler. But why didn't it do it before? Why did it just start? So I would start with some basics. I would start with check the thermostat. Make sure the thermostat's opening and closing when it should. Don't take the thermostat out. A lot of people kind of are under the misinformation that if you take the thermostat out, the engine's going to run cooler, when in fact that is doesn't always happen. When you take the thermostat out, sometimes what happens is the coolant will go through the radiator so fast it won't have time to dissipate any heat. So make sure the thermostat's in there. Could you put a lower temperature one in, a 160 instead of a 190 or whatever belongs in it? Yeah, you could do that. Uh, but make sure there's a thermostat in there. Make sure it opens and closes when it's supposed to. Make sure that the coolant is flowing when you look in the radiator. Do you see the coolant swirling by under the radiator cap? Uh, also, shut the car off. Do you, f- do you feel like cold spots in the radiator? The radiator should be pretty uniformly uniform hot, I guess is the right term. You know, touch the radiator uh, if you want to get real fancy, if you have one of those um, non-contact infrared thermometers. Kind of get a, a, a feel for the temperature. If you notice right in the middle of the radiator is cold and around the outside edges is hot, well, that means that the coolant isn't flowing through the radiator the way it should. Um the other thing, what kind of fan are you using? Did you upgrade the fan when you replaced the the engine? Are you using an electric fan rather than a mechanical fan? Are you using just a regular fixed fan or are you using a clutch fan? Um, what can happen to a clutch fan is there's a thermostatic spring on the clutch fan that as it gets hot, it'll drive the fan. When it's when it's not hot, it will the engine will spin faster than the fan because it doesn't use as much um, energy, doesn't use as much horsepower that way. So you get better fuel economy with the clutch fan. Well, what's what can sometimes happen is it won't switch over to that drive mode, and although it looks like it's turning when it's getting really hot, it's not turning fast enough. It's not moving enough air, so that can cause a problem. And finally, the thing that scares me the most, and this is not very common, um, 283 Chevy V8 engines are pretty resilient engines. 
But could it be a bad head gasket? Yeah, it could be. The idea that it blew the upper radiator hose off the thermostat housing? That's almost impossible. But it could be, and that could indicate that the um, uh, cylinder head gasket is bad. So I would start by doing some regular routine basic checkups before I did anything else, just to make sure everything's working okay. Um, make, again, a, Tom from Weymouth on the line, when you a sec? Check that thermostat, make sure everything's working the way it should. I think that's the best place to start. If you'd like to join us, our phone number is 781-837-4900, 781-837-4900. Let's talk to Tom from Weymouth. Tom, good morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah, good morning, John. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. I've never heard of a radiator hose blowing off in all my life. Not, not for, I mean, the <laughs> only time, you know, the only time I've ever seen that really happen is mm. usually with an old car that the head gaskets are just junk in it because it's been sitting for, you know, forever mm. and ever and ever, and it, the inside of the engine's all rusty, and it rotted, it just like, you know, like little Pac-Man just ate right through the uh, cylinder head, and uh, mm. you start it up, and it builds up crazy pressure, and it can do it, but usually what happens is it doesn't blow the radiator hose off, it, it, might, it might explode a radiator hose, and maybe... In this case, maybe that's why the heater core was leaking. Maybe the heater core was the first thing to go bad because of the too much pressure in the radiator. So, yeah. you know, I'd go to, you know, you can, you can, I think you can go borrow these block check kits from the auto parts store now. And you, you know, you put this li- liquid in, you hold it over the radiator cap and see if the stuff turns color. And if it does, you know, you got, you know, you got exhaust gas in, in the cooling system and that isn't where it belongs. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. it's kind of it's kind of a crazy one. Um, I, I, you know, hopefully it's nothing more than you know they have a clogged up radiator and they got a clutch fan that doesn't work the way it should. Because the idea of having a two eighty three and a little Chevy Nova, a little two yeah, two Chevy nice. Nova, is kind of a neat thing. Yeah, it is a nice little engine that you do. Yeah, uh, what I called about was because uh, I'm an EV resistor. <laughs> I got to keep my car. Down. I want to do more maintenance to it. So I want to change all the brake fluid this spring, you know, coming up, which I haven't done in years, ever since I was new. So basically, I could just self-bleed that. Uh, Can I do it just by gravity to each wheel and just basically keeping the, uh, you know, the the reservoir filled? And I don't have to do it because I want to get all that fluid out, you know. Will that work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of times when they do it professionally, they use a pressure bleeder and you know just right. force new fluid in and force the old fluid out. Sometimes people use the um, they'll use a, kind of a vacuum suction gun with a thing on it, and they'll you know suck the brake fluid through the brake bleeder that way. Uh, can you mm-hmm. crack open all the bleeder screws and just take the top off the master cylinder and let gravity sort of let the fluid drip out on its own. That sometimes can work. One thing you might want to try doing, and and you could give this a try. Um, you know, don't don't use your Thanksgiving turkey baster, but go get a turkey yeah. baster and just suck a fair amount of fluid out of the master cylinder and mm-hmm. put and put new fluid in. And when you stop the car, every time you stop the car, if you've ever had a master cylinder cover off while someone's pressing on the brake pedal you see fluid squirt up through the master cylinder and that's kind of yeah so what's happening is it's going to take that old fluid it's going to squish it back in with the new fluid and the new fluid is going to kind of go where the old fluid does um do you remember brad sears yep 
Yep. Brad Sears used to talk about how he he went to work for an ambulance company, I think. And what he would do every oil change, he would suck out a couple ounces of brake fluid out of the master cylinder out of all the ambulances. And mm. he he's his claim yeah. was and and I kind of believe this, his yeah. claim was that at the end of the day, you know, you weren't getting all the fluid out, but you were getting mm. the majority of it out, and you were doing it just kind of as routine maintenance. So you just, you know, you change the oil on, you know, car, truck, whatever it was, you'd suck out three or four ounces of dirty fluid. You wouldn't get down to the bottom of the master cylinder, but you'd suck out, you know, a few ounces of dirty fluid, pour in some fresh fluid, and you haven't, you haven't replaced it 100%, but you've done it nice and easy, and you haven't had to jack the car up to do it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's hey, it's a lot better than not doing it. That's for sure. Well, it's even and, like cooling today, you know, we don't seem to flush them. You know, like in the old days, we used to cut into the line, the heater line, and put one of those adapters in it yep. with the hose. You don't see that anymore. They just kind of say drain the radiator and fill it. With what and you even can. And, and even that, Audi. I was reading something from Audi the other day. They considered their coolant a lifetime fill. They consider it to be in there forever, and mm. it and it is, I guess, <laughs> providing it run doesn't run low. If it has a leak, and then the temperatures can affect some of the coolant. But uh, I remember going to, um, I was at uh, what was it, Mass Bay Community College, and and I happened to pop into their GM lab up there, and they were talking about coolant in some of the new GM cars. And they said what they don't look for is dirty anymore. They look for they look for pH balance and um, mm. to see whether there's whether the pH is off. And they said they'll they'll suck out some coolant. They'll look at it and it'll be brown and ugly looking. But they'll check mm. the they'll check the pH with like they have almost like a you know swimming pool strip. You dip it in there, and if it comes out where it's supposed to be, and it's still protecting the you know thirty four below zero, you leave it alone. There's no need to change it. So coolant is, you know, coolant's one of those things. But, yeah, but you know, think back of, you know, we put belts on. We used to put belts on every two years and hoses on mm. every three years. Now we're seeing belts last routinely 10 years or more. We're seeing hoses last 10 years or more uh, without any real problems. So things have, you know, things have changed. Things have oh, gotten better. Oh. Yeah. But uh, well, that's what bothers me is that, they really have done, uh, perfected these gas cars. I mean, to, to to my thinking, they're fantastic, really. And now we're changing <laughs> once we get them well, really perfected. Well, well and, I, and I'm going to go on to say that I still think that we're in the golden age of the automobile right now. Because mm-hmm. you, if you if you want to go out and buy a Tesla Model Y or, you know, Tesla Model mm-hmm. X or Lucid Air or, or a Kia or a Hyundai electric vehicle, go and buy it. On the other hand, if you want to go out and buy a, you know, you know, 500 horsepower Ford Mustang, go out and buy it. Um, you know, we right. have, you know, right now we have some, we have some really good choices. And I think we'll find that, um, you know, over time, people will switch to electric vehicles a little bit yep. more as charging gets better. Uh, right now, charging, you know, people that, you know, I, you know, when we had, uh, 
when we had uh, Zane Merver on the show the uh, last week or so, and he talked about driving his Hummer electric vehicle out to, I think his parents live in Ohio, and it added a couple hours to his normal gasoline driving commute. But he said overall, he found the charging much better than it was a year ago when he first got his uh, his Hummer EV. Um, and he said, you know, it's it's getting better. So, but I think for people who want to either stick to electric vehicles because of either, you know, lack of charging. I mean, when we sold our little house in Abington and moved to essentially our cottage on Cape Cod. Well, it was a it was a cottage. It wasn't set up to have a 50 amp circuit put in to plug an electric charger in. And when I do road test an electric car, I do have a 20 amp 120 volt outlet, so I can take advantage of a little bit more amperage, you know, growing mm-hmm. out of the house. But I don't have the electric capacity right now to put a 40 you know 40 amp 240 volt outlet at the corner of my house to charge up my electric car. I just, I would have to do a pretty major upgrade to my electrical panel and the service drop mm. coming in off the street and all of that. Yeah. So, you know, for me, an electric car is not 100% practical. And the nearest charging station I have to go to to get high-speed charging is the, the mall in Hyannis. So I have to drive 25 miles to go charge up my electric car and drive you know, or not 25 miles, but uh, 25, 25 or 30 minutes to drive up my, drive my electric car and, you know, turn around and drive another 25 or 30 minutes back, all with just the idea of charging the car up, which doesn't make a ton of sense unless I was going there. And mm-hmm. for people who know me, that the idea of me going to the mall just to go to the mall is not likely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's just the complexity. It's a, like she was mentioning heat pumps for houses. All I'm just saying is, for me, because I am a caveman, is that I have a boiler in my basement that's been running for 20 years without a problem. Change your circulator pump. When you see some of these systems, if you're into this stuff, all the different exchangers and pumps and blah, 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 it, what a system. And all I see is. When something fails, big dollars. On well, and and, and and I'll, I'll tell all. you, I'll tell you a little story about. Um, I had a gas water heater at my cottage, and it was literally thirty years old. And mm-hmm. you know, and you know, you know, what's what's the life of a typical water heater? Eight or ten yeah, years? Eight, eight, nine, yeah, ten. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was thirty years old. And I finally said, you know what? It it never really drafted right either because like um when it because it had to do a long vertical run to to draft and um mm-hmm. but it been that way for forever than it was there before I was there. I you know, we had it installed when we bought the house and you know, it worked worked fine, it made hot water, it did everything it was supposed to do. So I decided I was gonna replace it. And I got the brilliant idea. I wanted to replace it with one of those super ultra efficient instant gas water heaters. Oh yeah. And yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> I had I had three different people come out and give me a price. And in each case with the cost of the unit, the cost of the installation kit, and the cost of um doing the piping necessary to run the gas gas line cuz it has to be a big fat mm-hmm. gas line it's got to be a it's got to be a it's got to be a it's one inch be a, yeah yep. line or something um, yep. it was going to be between four and five thousand dollars yep 
which is right. which is a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of and, money. Yeah. And you'll and certainly you'll save money on your utility bill with it because it's that much more efficient and and you know we didn't need the biggest one because there's two of us so we don't need the biggest one but i the last plumber i had that came out was a guy by the name of dave the plumber and uh and his his i i like him because his phone number is like i don't know one eight hundred dave or something and um and and yeah and and he came out and he said to me um yeah, I can put one in. He said, you know, if I had to guess, probably $4,500 or so to put one in. And he looks at me, and he looks at the house, and he said, how long? How, how often are you here? And I said, I said, uh, you know, uh, you know, the plan is to be here for six months at a time. And he goes, you're going to be here mostly in the summertime, right? And I said, yeah, that's the plan. I said, but, you know, things could change. You know, we might end up, you know, staying here longer. Who, who knows, you know, the you know state of Florida could blow away. We don't know what's going to go on. So, um, so he said to me, I can't tell you what to do. And he says, I don't like telling customers they're dumb, but you're dumb. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, this new water heater will save you money. No question about it. He said, but they don't last forever. He said, you got to make sure you do yearly maintenance to them. They scale up inside. You got to do yearly, you got to do yearly yearly maintenance. And the other thing you have to do, keep in mind is they're going to have a, 12 or 15 year life when they break not any big deal because you get it's all pre-piped he said you could change it yourself it wouldn't be a big deal to do it do it yourself he said but if i were you he said i'd put a decent electric water heater in he said you're going to spend mm-hmm. five you're going to spend five or six hundred dollars for it versus the five thousand mm-hmm. that you're gonna that you're gonna pay up front and he said yeah you might be able to apply for a rebate you know that might take it down a little bit but he said at the end of the day it's going to take you 20 or 30 years in savings on your utility bill on your gas bill to pay Absolutely. that $5000 and he looks at me and goes and you'll be dead mhm that's right <laughs> <laughs> and and he said he said you know he said could you do it will it be more efficient absolutely um are you going to see any, he said, if you took that $5,000 and, you know, took took a little bit of, he said, he said, yeah, the electric water heater is going to cost you another, you know, it's going to add 20 or $30 a month to your electric bill, maybe. And in the, you know, six months you're here, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to add a couple hundred bucks to your electric bill. Um, and it's going to take, mm-hmm. even at that, it's going to take. 25 years to get the money a lifetime for yeah. you yeah yeah and and then again he looked at me and said and you'll be dead that's right <laughs> and i and said those are the things you have to <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah and and he goes he says again i'm not telling you you're dumb i'm not telling you you shouldn't do it he said is it yeah. better for the environment yeah it is are you going to use less energy yes you are but he said if you're looking at just taking money out of your wallet to me it makes more sense to put an electric water heater in yeah, well, that's our old way of thinking. I know they're changing us, but I do know somebody who just installed one of those, that whole system, heat, yep. hot water combination, beautiful. I was there. I watched the whole installation. I was very interested in it, and it's been in for two and a half years, and it's already been down a couple of times. And actually, 
because of the cost to fix it, I went over and I did a lot of research and stuff, and I fixed and took valves out and stuff, and, and it works. But it's 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 very complicated. You know, I'm a mechanical person, yeah, and I, I like to. Know. But that would have already incurred easily a thousand dollars in hey, repairs. I, hey, I hear music playing in the background, and I th- and I think and I think we even forgot to take a break. Did we take our second break there, Jesse? We did not, so I'm, that's why I queued it about 30 seconds early so we can end it with some beautiful commercials. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll build Tom for that. Hey, we got to go. You've been listening to the Car Doctor Program, 95.9 WATD. We'll be back next week. Until next time, wear your seatbelt, drive safely, be good to your car. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.